0: my stomach lurched a little bit a few moments ago when kathy said it's been eight years since i began an internship here that seems like a long time ago Uh, it's true though it's been six years since i stood behind this pulpit and with that much (laughs) thank you thank you it's good to be home Uh, there's so much six years on that i want to say to you and that i want to ask you but six years is an awful lot to cover so instead maybe let's think of the last two and i'm wondering if you could count if it's even possible how many times over the past two years have you asked the question or heard someone else ask the question why why is the world so harsh and hard these days why is the pandemic lasting so long why does pandemic life mean that my laundry bin and my dishwasher are always full no matter how many times i empty them why does pandemic life make it so hard to speak to my neighbor why have so terribly many people died Why are thousands of young people in our country depressed and anxious? Why have we not done a better job for them yet regarding climate change? Why do tyrants of the world go unchecked still after all we've seen in human history? And why, why, why are nations embroiled in war? I reckon it's the question of our time. But I also think it's just the question of our kind. To ask why is to be so very human. When we see the world as it is around us, we just can't help ourselves. We are creatures who want to understand. And so when the world gets calm and especially when it goes crazy, we try to make sense of what we see because we want our lives to be reasonable and logical and orderly and sane. Why is the question of our times. It is the question of our kind, and it just so happens to be the question of our time together this morning, as we'll see in just a moment when we hear our scripture reading. Now, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, the story that we're going to hear will seem similar to a lot of others. There are gonna be some people who have a question for Jesus, and he will give them an answer, sort of, but it's going to be confusing and delivered in a very roundabout way together we're going to do our best to untangle his answer but in the meantime i invite you to simply listen and see if you can locate yourself in the story when a group of people approaches jesus to share headline worthy horrible news ask yourself if their wor- words feel familiar when they come and say jesus terrible things have happened we have seen them there is evident pain in the world So we need you to help us interpret what we are seeing. Tell us, Jesus, why?
1: A reading from the Gospel of Luke. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way they were worse sinners?" than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Shalom fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than any of the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good but if not you can cut it down hear what the spirit is saying to the church
0: eugene peterson used to tell a really wonderful story Uh, eugene peterson if you don't know that name was an american presbyterian minister and scholar and theologian and poet and he is perhaps best known for his creation of the message bible it's a hugely popular paraphrase of the Bible that he wrote over the span of a decade. And it's a version of the Bible I expect many of you have in your home. I know that, well, six years ago, there were many copies here at this church. And Peterson used to tell this wonderful story about when he was a kid growing up in this tiny little town in Montana. As he remembered it, it was late August, school hadn't started yet, And he and his friends were bored. Do you remember that late summer feeling where you would give anything to be back to routine? Put yourself there. They were bored and there had been this house on his street that was vacant. It had been vacant all summer and even longer and finally someone bought it so he and his bored friends had been waiting all summer for the new people to show up and give them something to do and finally one day a moving van came rolling up in front of this house, unannounced. Big surprise. Now normally, in his small town, if someone was moving, Peterson's neighbors didn't hire moving vans, they didn't bring in movers, they just called every single person in town with a pickup truck and had them come and help do the job. So this was already very exciting. Peterson had never seen a moving van. When it pulled up, then, he was captivated so captivated that he called his friends and he and his friends sat there across the street all day watching as every bit of the new neighbor's stuff came off of that truck. And as they watched, it was like every last thing that came off of that truck was a sign Two bicycles came off of the truck. The family had children. It was a sign. Here were coming new friends. Then there were snow skis. Peterson and his friends lived in ski country, but none of them had ever actually gone skiing. They were all much too poor. So a sign. The new neighbors were rich. A motorcycle came off. It was a sign. Peterson was going to ride that motorcycle. He knew it. And then two days later, the neighbors themselves arrived in a fancy car with New York license plates, and that was like the icing on the cake. The new neighbors weren't just rich, they were from the exotic east. And the neighborhood had just gotten an upgrade. In an instant, Peterson knew that he had been saved from the sameness and the poverty and the boredom that he had been longing to get away from. Although, it turned out, after all the waiting and the careful viewing of all of these signs, it didn't take long for this dream to fall apart. It started when Peterson went over with a plate of cookies to greet the new neighbors, and the mother opened the door, took the cookies, didn't say hi, didn't smile, and certainly didn't let him in, but shut the door. There never was an offer to try out the skis or the motorcycle. And the kids that came weren't new friends. They were actually kind of mean and called the townies Hicks and Hayseeds. Although the town could never determine really if they thought that being called Hicks was better or worse than what happened with the father of this family who managed to never say a single word to a townie at all. It was a bust plain and simple, and remembering those days, Peterson often said, and this is the point of the whole story, that the problem was that they had misinterpreted the signs. He and his friends were bored, and they were longing for something different. They wanted a little excitement, and so they saw everything in a way that fit their desires for something better, something different for their lives. And that is an interesting story for us to have before us this morning as we find ourselves gathering with this crowd, approaching Jesus, and asking him to interpret everything that we have seen. As St. Luke tells it, the events that have just taken place for the crowd that comes to Jesus are truly horrific. First, it's reported that Pontius Pilate just killed a group of Galilean Jews and mingled their blood with that of sacrificial lambs. And meanwhile, the Tower of Siloam has collapsed, and when it fell, it crushed and killed 18 people who were just standing there. And it all brings these people who have now witnessed the unimaginable in search of an explanation. They come to Jesus and they say, Tell us, Jesus, why? Why? although they come not unlike the boys who were watching that moving truck. They come with an answer already in mind. They're asking questions of Jesus, but they mostly just want Jesus to verify what they and most of the community in that day already deeply believed, that if people suffer, it must be because they're sinful that we who walk this earth generally do get what we deserve. That bad things happen to bad people. It may be tough, but it's predictable. It's logical, it's reasonable, it's orderly, it's sane. And it may be tempting for us to look at such ancient beliefs and feel smugly superior in comparison Here we are today, and I expect that there are not many folks gathered in this space who would explain suffering in that manner. But I'm also not certain that our explanations for human suffering and human thriving have really come that much farther along. We've just become really good, I think, at flipping the language. Are really skilled at twisting the lens. We have learned to never say that people deserve suffering, but we love to say still that we are very deserving of our rewards. In the church, if you want Christian language for this, we often call it the prosperity gospel. And you know the prosperity gospel, even if you don't know it by that name. You know it for the central claim that it carries, which is that there is In fact, a direct path to having a good life, and anyone, if they try hard enough, can find it. It's simple. In Jesus Christ, there is a way. In Christ, all of our heart's desires await, and there can be money in the bank and a healthy body and a thriving family and boundless happiness. No matter what troubles you, you can bootstrap your way out of it, just reorient and manifest something better for yourself. Just believe, and you will land on your feet. Just believe, and you will be healed of all illness and spared from all hardship and saved. Now, both of these angles, that specific people deserve hardship or that specific people deserve good things, do the work that we call theodicy. These are just explanations from people trying to understand why. They are explanations for the problem of evil. They present an answer to the questions that take our lives apart. These are attempts to answer the questions that we can hear underlying our gospel text today and the exact kinds of questions that come up when we move through our own troubles, including, oh, I don't know, two years of a pandemic and the start of a war. Why? Why do bad things happen? Why does all of this seem so unfair? Why do some people get healed when others don't? Why do some people leap and land on their feet while others take the same leap and seem to tumble all the way down? Why do some babies die in their cribs while some bitter souls live to see great-grandchildren? Why? Well, maybe the people who didn't get crushed by the tower just made better choices, stood in safer places, those who died must have been sinners. And those who didn't must have been good. I'll be honest. I wish, I wish that the gospel of Luke and that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the prosperity gospel. I do. Because while it's true that there are some folks who exploit it and claim that God wants to harm their enemies and meanwhile also wants private jets and multi-million dollar homes for the faithful, you know, endless moving trucks full of bicycles and motorcycles and snow skis, what I really hear and sense in this whole conversation is simply yearning. I hear a dream of escape. Escape from ugliness and poverty, danger, failing health, and escape from the feeling that our lives are just these leaky buckets. All I hear is a plea to God for some reassurance. You know, please, God, promise me that if I pray and believe and live righteously and seek your kingdom, there will be some measure of comfort to be found. Please give me some logic, some reason, some order. Make it sane. That's what I hear. And who, in their right mind, honestly, doesn't want exactly that? Which is why it must have been so hard, and it is still so hard, then, to hear Jesus' answer to the questions that these folks are bringing. He just very plainly says, no. No. No, is what he tells them. No, that's not how God works. No. If that's what you believe, you are misinterpreting the signs. For a little while, Jesus keeps talking. It's all a bit hard to explain, he says, but you might do better if you considered a fig tree a fig tree that by all accounts isn't doing what it should do. It's not producing fruit, and yet there's this gardener who simply doesn't see that as a reason to cut it down. You, beloved, you are the fig tree. You are all fig trees. You're fig trees in God's garden, and in this garden No plant deserves more or less of the resources. No plant is ever destined to be cut down. You may flourish or fade or fight or falter, but you and the tree next to you and the tree next to that one and the tree next to that one and the tree next to that one, you all get the same nurture and you all get the same care. You all get the same audacious hope. You all have budding potential and ultimate worthiness and life abundant even when that seems impossible. Because God, as a gardener, is simply not in the business of uprooting anyone. God is not interested in ranking the trees. There is no divine preferential treatment. God's love is the same for all of you. It's given freely and fully in every moment to every person. There is simply no human logic to God's love. He says that, and then, in typical Jesus fashion, when the questions are growing, he stops explaining. The parable and our scripture just ends. The question, the why of it all, goes unanswered. These hurting, heartbroken folks come to Jesus looking for an explanation, but he doesn't give it. Nothing is resolved and nothing is simplified. And yet, and yet the community preserved this story. This is a memory that they held on to. We only have so many of these recorded memories with Jesus, and this is one of them. The community held tightly to this one, and I wonder, why? The world they experienced after this encounter must have been so much like the one they experienced before it. I'm certain they still felt afraid sometimes. I'm certain they still experienced anger and cruelty and pain. I am certain that anxiety and addiction and the past and the future still haunted them, and Jesus gave them nothing to help endure any of that. Unless, of course, that's a misinterpretation It could be that I'm misreading the signs. It's possible that after that day, they were able to walk a little bit differently from there on out. They come to Jesus with a question, and he didn't, he doesn't answer that question, but he does offer a promise. No matter what we see, No matter how many times trouble comes to the garden, no matter how many times we are sure that we will be cut down, God and love and life somehow will still have the final say. It's definitely not the plain explanation that anyone wanted. It's not as flashy as a moving truck full of new bicycles. It's not as practically useful as a fruit from a tree and it won't protect us from hardship and whether it will ever supply any of us with boundless happiness, I really can't say. Although, honestly, probably not. Still, though, God's love, whether or not we deserve it, God's love, no matter what, God's love somehow impossibly present and working amidst everything? God's love? That sure is something. And maybe it is some kind of an answer. Amen.